Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for women living with advanced ovarian cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about fertility preservation with Dr. Pasquale Patrizio. Dr. Patrizio is professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at the Yale School of Medicine and director of the Yale Fertility Center and Fertility Preservation Program. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Whoa, thanks for joining me tonight. Before we get started, can you recite that title by yourself? That is the longest title I think I've ever interviewed anybody for. Well, first of all, thank you and good evening to everyone. Uh, yes, it's a mouthful, but uh, simply said, it's, I'm in charge of uh, uh, patients that have a problem in uh, achieving a pregnancy. So that's the Yale Fertility Center. And in addition, I'm also specialized in uh, fertility preservation, which is part of uh, uh, a, uh, a branch of our subspecialty of reproductive medicine, which is uh, specifically aiming at uh, uh, patients that they've been hit by cancer or any other medical condition, or they want to f- preserve their fertility for, uh, uh, for future, uh, uh, at the future time. So that's, that's fascinating. So did you come into the field then uh, through a sort of traditional obstetrics and gynecology training um, or an endocrinology training or a cancer training? Yes. In order to be uh, specialized in reproductive medicine, you first do a a, um, residency in obstetrics and gynecology, and then you you do an additional training specifically in reproductive medicine and infertility. And uh, in addition, I also had an extra training in uh, two other things. I specialized in uh, andrology, which is the study of male fertility. And I also have a master in uh, bioethics, so that's uh, th- that's my full uh, circle of titles. Uh, the, the ethics thing might be a whole different show, I'm afraid. That would be very fascinating to talk about. But I think our our, our listeners are, are probably interested in the fertility preservation mostly. And 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 I have to say, of course, uh, with my patients uh, who uh, mostly have leukemia or lymphoma, it's often a medical emergency, and many of them are young. And uh, so this question of, you know, should they do fertility preservation? Uh, Is it feasible? How much time do we have? These are really pressing questions for us uh, in dealing with our patients. And there's also very important questions. And the the short answer is yes, they should all be uh, at least uh, uh, introduced to the concept of uh, fertility preservation. When you say young, uh, um, if they are post-pubertal, there are various options that uh, we will discuss uh, in details in a little bit. But if they are pre-pubertal, there are also now options for both men and women that they can consider um, uh, as well. Uh, it is definitely a discussion that has to be entertained because if it's not entertained later on after chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or any other uh, toxic uh, insult to the uh, reproductive function, then there is going to be regret. And there is really nothing wrong in having a 
a discussion with the reproductive specialist. And uh, at the end of the discussion and all the options are presented, uh, the patient uh, and if he's young uh, with, together with their parents, they can come up to, with a, a decision that can be good for their own uh, specific case. Yeah. Well, of course, my, my practice is mostly adults and that, that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, and we have patients, you know, we have, interestingly, of course, we have some patients in their 30s who have five kids and you know, they've had enough. Uh, but And then we have the 40-year-olds who've not yet had a child who are hoping. So it really runs the gamut. And, um, you know, I was taught, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I was taught when I was training in leukemia that for the most part when young men – young adult men uh, present with either an aggressive lymphoma or leukemia, often their sperm count is diminished or their quality of, of sperm is not very good. And at the previous place I was at, they in fact weren't, whether it was a rationalization or not, I don't know, but they were not routinely order, uh, offered semen banking because it was thought, well, it's not going to be effective anyway. Is that, is that old news? This is uh, definitely old news. Uh, you are uh, uh, absolutely correct when you say that uh, uh, men with uh, leukemia and lymphoma, uh, when they do a semen analysis uh, during their uh, um, time that they've been diagnosis, di diagnosed, yes, they do have a, a decreased sperm count. But uh, uh, what is really important is that uh, today's technologies in assisted reproduction are so uh, precise and so effective that even a man with an extremely low sperm count, low sperm motility, meaning very few sperm are swimming, that sample still has to be uh, frozen because we can use a single sperm at the time in an egg wow. and allow uh, fertilization and reproduction in that particular case. So always, always refer and save any sperm that is available in the, in the ejaculate before chemotherapy is started. Right. And, of course, with many kinds of chemotherapy that we offer to younger people, they will, in fact, recover their fertility, right? You are also correct here in that uh, uh, particularly with the changes in the uh, uh, chemotherapy protocols that are so-called less aggressive uh, towards the testicle or the ovaries, there are many uh, cases where uh, the uh, patient recovers and therefore the reproductive function is completely uh, saved by the, the chemotherapy. However, it's, uh, it's impossible to predict right. who is going to recover and who is not. And in particular for men to, uh, to have a sample uh, cryopreserved, it's, pretty easy. it's easy to, to do. It's much more difficult for women, of course. We won't describe it on the radio how they do it. <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> and uh, therefore, it's always good to have a, at least a sample uh, uh, which can then be split into multiple vials, but at least a sample cryopreserved. And if, uh, if the gentleman recovers, uh, great. So that sample can be uh, then uh, uh, disposed of. Because it, it, it costs money every year that the sample is stored, right? It does, but uh, uh, it depends you know, how this expense is uh, considered in the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the final outcome. If you have to pay $500 or $600 a year to keep a sample frozen, and they can be kept frozen for, uh, for many, many years. I mean, uh, 15 years, 20 years, that's not a problem anymore. Uh, you know, at the moment that you need to use it, 
you, you don't need to keep it frozen forever. At the moment that you use it, you use it. If you don't need to use it because your uh, sperm has returned in your ejaculate, then you or can throw it out. You yeah. can throw it out. Or if the eggs have uh, been frozen, uh, then uh, you have recovered your uh, ovarian function for women, they can also dispose of the eggs. Mm-hmm. And in general, in my experience, and again, maybe this is outdated, insurance tends not to cover this. Is that right? This is also an outdated concept. And uh, I'm glad that you asked these questions because uh, we are very proud here in uh, Connecticut to say that we have been the first state in the United States to have the service of fertility preservation for cancer or any other medical uh, condition to be covered by insurance. So there is a mandate in Connecticut. No kidding. I've worked here six years. I didn't know that. Yes. It's, it's true, though. It's now two years that uh, wow. a bill was signed, and uh, we are very, very proud that uh, Connecticut was the first state. Is that there true? are another seven states now that have, uh, and there are another 10 that are preparing to approve uh, insurance mandate for fertility preservation in uh, uh, cancer uh, conditions. And is that true for the public uh, insurance, like Husky as well, the, for the Medicaid? Well, that's uh, of course it's a little bit diffi- uh, different for the uh, for the husky. Uh, those are probably less uh, covered. I want to say though that uh, there are programs that we provide and the pharmaceutical comp- uh, provide where uh, medications are given in a compassionate fashion. And uh, there are discounts for patients that cannot really afford yeah. it because uh, for their own specific uh, insurance, they, they are not fully covered. Yeah, and that's really important and ironic, really, because, of course, the, the Husky patients and other uh, subsidized patients are the ones who can least afford the out-of-pocket compared to the well-insured, uh, you know, professional class, uh, many of whom have – and not all – all people, many of whom have, uh, you know, uh, fungible monies around. You are, you are very true on this, and it's, it's very sad to, to be facing this type of reality. However, the, the fact that there are pharmacies that are offering uh, medications Absolutely. for free, and also there are also very nice uh, opportunity uh, here at Smilo. Uh, we have, a, in particular, a very, uh, a very generous patient that has put together uh, a fund, uh, particularly for patients that cannot afford, wow. specifically, however, for for breast cancer. And this I is see. a very thankful uh, patient that wow. uh, is, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, helping uh, uh, others with breast cancer. So let's take the case of, uh, of a male patient, and uh, let's say it's acute leukemia, which is often an emergency. And let's say the guy's coming in on a Saturday, because that's what happens, or Friday night. How fast can we mobilize this, uh, really? How, how much time do we have for him to give his sample and get it in the freezer before we start chemotherapy? Now, we are open uh, as a service of fertility preservation at Yale uh, seven days a week. On uh, If it's on a Sunday, it's just a Sunday morning, unfortunately. Uh, so, therefore, if, uh, if uh, we get a, a phone call, we have a 24-hour uh, service, we have a phone call that the gentleman has to, to freeze sperm. Within 24 hours, this wow. can be done. Well, that's great, it, and that's a, I mean, that's a terrific service. Now, now, obviously, it's more complicated for women because they can't just, uh, you know, 
sit there and fantasize and produce their eggs, right? I mean, it's a much more complicated procedure. So, so what's involved and in, in how successful is uh, oocyte pre- preservation or ovarian preservation? For women that uh, need to uh, preserve fertility because of cancer and, and again, before they undergo uh, chemotherapy or radiotherapy or any other surgical uh, uh, treatment that may impact their future reproductive options, uh, the time that we need in order to do a, an, egg, an egg freezing has become extremely short. Today, two weeks, that's all what is needed. In the old days, meaning uh, uh, four or five years ago, we needed a minimum of uh, four to six weeks. Yeah, that's what I remember. And uh, the reason why it's shortened is because we learned that we can stimulate ovaries at any part of the menstrual cycle. So no matter where in the menstrual cycle a patient is, we can start the stimulation of the ovary. You used to have to wait until a period so you knew how to time it, right? Right. Now, no more. Wow. So now we can stimulate the ovaries at any part of the menstrual cycle, and in two weeks we can collect eggs. It is a process. It's two weeks during which patient has to be seen uh, three or four times in our office, and then uh, uh, they need to take particular medications to uh, stimulate the ovaries in, in producing uh, uh, more than just one egg. And then uh, the collection is also done in the office, is under uh, uh, heavy sedation. And uh, in 15 minutes, the eggs are extracted and uh, whatever it is mature is going to be frozen. And, and can I ask how you do the egg harvest? Is that through the vagina or through the abdomen with a laparoscope? Or? No, no, it's not uh, surgical. It's a mini surgery in that it's through the vagina. Uh, there is a, um, we use a vaginal probe ultrasound that is uh, uh, fitted with a needle. On the, uh, and then we give a local anesthesia plus heavy sedation. And uh, it's, uh, it takes about 15 minutes to harvest through the vagina. So there is no cut. There is no, uh, no bruise. And it's a pretty straightforward uh, process uh, to do so. Wow. Well, this is a, a very fascinating process, and we're going to want to talk more about it. But right now, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Pasquale Patrizio. We are discussing fertility preservation and cancer. So, uh, Pasquale, you were telling me before the break that uh, it takes about two weeks uh, to stimulate egg production sufficient to harvest and that it's kind of a minor, sort of like a needle aspiration, it sounds like, uh, to get these uh, eggs. What happens to the eggs then? 
Once the eggs are harvested, they are uh, assessed in the embryology lab for uh, maturity. We only freeze eggs that are considered mature, and generally about 80% of the eggs that are harvested, they are considered mature, and then they are going to be uh, frozen. And the process of freezing is also important to to let the uh, uh, audience know that has improved dramatically over the last uh, seven or eight years with a technique that is called vitrification, which stands for uh, very fast freezing. And this has been uh, accompanied by an extremely high success in terms of survival rate when the eggs are then needed to be uh, utilized. Hmm. And how many, on average, eggs are attained. It also depends on uh, mostly on the age of the patient. Uh, uh, younger, more, uh, and uh, over the age of 37, we get fewer. But uh, as an average, women that are younger than 37, after one cycle, they we are able to freeze 10 to 12 eggs. Wow. In uh, women that are older than 37, in general, we can get uh, uh, six uh, uh, eggs as an average. Hmm. And, and does this treatment in any way impair the patient's future ability to produce eggs if she recovers her fertility after chemotherapy? Right. So this is an excellent question because we are asked all the time whether there is an impact on the future chance of reproduction if we harvest eggs. The answer is no. The eggs that are harvested in a particular menstrual cycles are eggs that they would have been lost anyway. Hmm. So there is no shortening or uh, anticipation of the time to menopause. Menopause is going to be uh, decided according to what type of uh, chemotherapy therapy, dose, and the cycles of treatment that that patient is going to receive. But certainly, it's not the egg harvesting that is going to uh, create uh, damage or future uh, uh, risk for fertility. Actually, that's uh, that's uh, uh, important to, to say. Yeah. So you said that the success rate of the freezing and thawing has improved. So what is the likelihood of uh, being able to create a viable embryo Uh, when these eggs are thawed in the future. Now, uh, it is also important to stress that uh, the great majority of eggs that have been frozen in a cancer patient are still frozen. And uh, uh, if we look also at the worldwide experience on how many eggs have been utilized in patients that have uh, uh, done so because of a cancer reason, there are not too many uh, cases reported, but in general, uh, uh, therefore borrowing from the data of uh, the literature, we can say that uh, the survival rate of these eggs that have been vitrified is uh, around 80 to 85 percent. Okay. So that's very good. They, uh, those that survive, they have a very high chance of fertilization, about 70 percent uh, they can create embryos. And once you have created at least two uh, good quality embryos, the chance of having a baby is about 35 uh, percent. So it's not a slam dunk success. But it's, I mean, if only 35 percent, you know, depending on how many eggs you start with, right? 35 uh, percent uh, for uh, uh, having two embryos. If you have four embryos and that means you, you have a, a couple of uh, opportunity for, uh, sure, for that, pregnancy, right. then uh, cumulatively, cumulatively you are looking at around 50 to 60 percent. Right. 
Which is which is fantastic. And of course, we would always like to have 100% in everything we do. Well, which is fantastic considering that if, uh, unfortunately, there was no time to do anything or no desire to do anything, uh, and then you have a regrets. Then you then, got zero then, then you have zero percent. Right. What about the patient? Um, like, let's take the female version of the patient that I was describing that comes in on a Saturday and really can't wait more than a, a day or two. So he's not going to have – she's not going to have any 14 days. We're going to have to treat her into remission. Is it worthwhile to, uh, once she's in remission and now she has some time, can she try to harvest eggs then? Okay, so this uh, uh, question uh, gives me the opportunity to elaborate a little bit more on uh, on a specific uh, uh, case that you are thinking of, which is leukemia. Uh, in general, they are very uh, sick patients. They don't, they are with the high fever. They don't have the like you said the two weeks of time to wait for having the ovary stimulated. So in those cases. Uh, unfortunately, the only option we have at the moment is to take care first of their health condition sure. and uh, use a, a particular medication that is considered to be uh, protective on the on the ovary, on the ovarian function, which is a monthly injection during the time that the patient will undergo chemotherapy. But then after a couple of cycles, two or three cycles of chemotherapy, and uh, if we have an opportunity to wait for about uh, six, eight, eight weeks before restarting chemotherapy, we need eight weeks before we can ah, then stimulate the ovaries. I see. Before you go with the to recover chemo- from to recover yes. from the protectant drug. Correct. And also, I cannot stimulate an ovary to collect eggs while the patient is doing a, the chemo. uh, chemotherapy because chemotherapy is extremely toxic for eggs. And in those cases, eggs are growing, therefore they can be uh, made not viable by the use of the chemotherapy. Gotcha. So you need to have a little bit of time. Um, but I want to spend also another another moment to explain that for particularly for uh, leukemia and exclusively for leukemia, I should say in this case, uh, in the old days there was always a concern that uh, leukemia you cannot offer another option which is called ovarian tissue freezing, which means you take a piece of ovarian uh, tissue and then you freeze it, and we were not offering it because uh, leukemia is one of those cancers that also spreads to the ovary. Sure. So you don't want to freeze a piece of ovary and then uh, in the future uh, Put it uh, back. retransplant and have a risk of uh, uh, returning the cancer because the cancer was uh, uh, slippy in the ovary that uh, froze, that, that you froze. But today, we know that after a couple of cycles of chemotherapy, now I can freeze that ovarian tissue uh, if there is no time to do an ovarian stimulation because after a couple of cycles of chemotherapy, the ovaries has been purged of those leukemic cells that were infiltrating, and now you can freeze uh, ovarian tissue. And even though the ovaries are still asleep from the drug you've given them, from yes. the protectant yes. drug, they're still going to recover? Correct. Wow. And the three babies have been born and reported uh, two from uh, uh, Israel and one from St. Louis. Wow. So you, do you take out the whole ovary or a you, slice of ovary? What do you do? In some cases, you can take one ovary, leave the other one in place. Uh, because you never know, as we said uh, earlier, that uh, a patient is going recover. to recover. So if it does not recover, then you can use the existing left, uh, left uh, uh, behind ovary as a scaffold on which you can regraft, you can uh, uh, replace that ovarian tissue that you had frozen from the ovary that you have removed. Well, that's fascinating. So you take the frozen ovarian tissue and you graft it onto the existing ovary? That is not functioning anymore. Wow. And then uh, that will start to function again. It takes root. Correct. 
And does, does it usually, I mean, it probably hasn't happened so often, but uh, does it usually recover and, and serve as a functioning ovary at least Yes, some time? Uh, there are a total of uh, close to 200 babies that have been born by doing exactly what we just described. And in the United States, there is a total of 17 uh, children born by doing a retransplant uh, or regrafting of ovary on the old existing ovary that is not functioning anymore. Or if there is no ovary at all, those uh, uh, pieces of ovarian tissue that were frozen, they can be grafted in the pelvic side wall on, on the side of yeah. on the place where the ovary was originally uh, present. That's so cool. And, and does the patient regain uh, menstrual cycles and things like that from the ovary? After four to five months, yes, because that's the minimum time you need to wait before the uh, ovarian function return. But that's normal also in the normal women. Mm-hmm. It takes about four months to produce an egg. So they start cycling and therefore the ovarian tissue tissue is making the normal hormones as well, right? The ovary has to make hormones, or do you give them exogenous hormones? No, most of the time they produce their own hormone, and uh, and in fact, they are no longer uh, in menopause from uh, chemotherapy. They re- they resume their uh, endocrine function as well, which means production of estrogen, which is one of the main functions of the ovary. And uh, occasionally, there are reports where you stimulate the ovary or the ovarian tissue that you have retransplanted just to see if you can get in, a, in, a, in instead of one, maybe you can get two or three eggs. But uh, it's it's remarkable that many of those births that have been reported, they've also been achieved by natural cycles and uh, no use of uh, any other uh, assisted reproductive technique. And in these ones where you don't have an ovary to graft them onto, but you put them, you know, on the side of the pelvis, uh, do the does the fallopian tube find the? No, uh, those cases you, you need have to, to those harvest. cases you need to harvest, right? And then you do in vitro fertilization. Gotcha. I was going to say that's really amazing if the fallopian tubes can find the no. uh, tissue. That would be so cool. No. I mean, that, that's so interesting, and I, I'm wondering, and I'm going to show my ignorance. This is I'm really out of my comfort zone here scientifically. Uh, why? Um, would it not be a good idea to do this kind of ovarian harvest on most premenopausal women uh, who are being treated for cancer, maybe not the breast cancer patients because, or something where you don't want estrogen around, of course, but people who are going to lose their ovarian function predictably, and then they're going to have to suffer the consequences of early menopause on bone health and cardiac health and all that stuff. Why don't, why don't we do this for all of those women and replant them and let them get their tissue back? Well, uh, uh, again, uh, it's not a stupid question or <laughs> ignorant question. It's a fantastic question. And in fact, we are working on that. I just came back from a, a meeting where I was talking about exactly what you just uh, asked me. And uh, essentially, this is a very important uh, future uh, op- opportunity for uh, not only women with uh, with the cancer or any other medical condition that uh, can impact their, uh, their their menopausal early menopause, but we are also considering for women that they want to uh, they are completely normal and, uh, and maybe considering to freeze uh, an ovary or part of an ovarian uh, uh, tissue for, let's say, at age 30, 32, 33, and then uh, when they are approaching menopause age, at age 48, 49, because even with one ovary, the time to menopause is not uh, different so much than uh, a woman that has two ovaries. That's the remarkable adaptation of the human body. So you take one ovary, 
away, instead of having menopause at age 51, for example, you will have it at 48. But if you have a frozen an ovary and you re- retransplant the tissue when, uh, when, when the lady is now 48 and you took it when you were at 30, now you have a guaranteed, in a way, at least another 15 years of endocrine function, of estrogen production, and that is going to impact uh, in a very um, uh, important ways on osteoporosis, like you mentioned, on heart conditions, and the overall well-being of women. So we are talking in this, in this case of ovarian rejuvenation, of a postponing menopause, and we learned about this from uh, the... the the experience with the cancer patient in retransplanting ovarian mm. tissue. We know how now how to freeze the ovarian tissue. We know how to retransplant ovarian tissue. And therefore, the question was, if we can do it with the ovarian tissue in the cancer patient, why not to consider it also in women that they want to uh, postpone eventually menopause mm. and don't need to take uh, uh, hormones uh, for a prolonged period of time, particularly now that uh, lifespan has increased so much, Women are spending an average of 30 years in menopause. So, therefore, this is an option that is on the table. And uh, even though it's under experimental uh, condition at the moment, but it's definitely on the table. I guess you have to follow such women to make sure that the ongoing years of exposure to uh, um, estrogens from their body turns out not to be harmful. There was a lot of scare in the old days about people taking high doses of Premarin uh, and whether that was influencing endometrial cancer and so on back when higher doses of unopposed estrogen were being administered uh, routinely to postmenopausal women, right? That's correct. Uh, but uh, I want to add that uh, today the way that the medical field is moving, particularly with the opportunity of doing so much screening for uh, cancer genetic mutations, uh, if we do know a, a background of whether or not a particular patient has a family history and the presence of uh, particular cancer mutations and the number of mutations that are available for screening is increasing by the day, then uh, we can consider two things. One, yes, we can do this. We can transplant the ovarian tissue. Uh, the ovarian tissue production of hormone is uh, the natural hormone, the, the one that is the so-called physiological. is not the one that has been uh, built or produced in a, in a, in a pharmaceutical uh, uh, warehouse. And therefore, we think it's going to be a little bit better. But I totally agree with you. It's, we have to be very cautious, and this is not going to be for everyone. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating, and I think we could definitely segue into the ethical discussion if we only had time. Uh, but in the meantime, we are out of time. Pasquale, it's great having you here on Yale Cancer Answers, and I, I've totally enjoyed myself. It's been a terrific show learning about fertility, preservation, and cancer, and it's so hopeful for our younger patients. Um, and I just think we need to communicate with the uh, oncologists like myself who really are not up to date all the time on how your field has really transformed even in the last few years that I've been here. So congratulations and kudos. No, and thank you for having this discussion, which is extremely important. And uh, I'm also very happy that uh, Smilo Cancer Center offered me a room in uh, at the cancer center every Wednesday afternoon. I'm there seeing a cancer patient because, as you said, we need to make sure that uh, our colleague oncologists they are aware of the options. We have so many options, and we can really make the life uh, of uh, these patients uh, uh, much, much better for their future. Dr. Pasquale Patrizio is Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at the Yale School of Medicine and Director of the Yale Fertility Center and Fertility Preservation Program. 
If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.